0: Never Strays Far is brought to you by Chapter 3 and the Roadbook Cycling's definitive almanac. You can buy the very few remaining 2018 and 2019 first editions as a special bundle price for just £55 by visiting www.theroadbook.co.uk. And if you enter the discount code CLASSIC, we'll throw in a free musette and the very beautiful, worth £7.50 with every order.
1: And Chapter 3, the brand I created, founded in 2015. And it's uh, something that I've uh, always wanted to do, is bring to cycling a a more creative individual style that isn't just based on one discipline, but multi-disciplines. And we're on the journey, and I hope you'll join us. Go to chapter3.com and see what we've got. Uh, There are lots of stories, there's products, there's uh, everything we hope that will help you find your next chapter in cycling.
0: Wittgenstein firmly believed that people think that art and people think generally in the 20th century that art and music are in our lives simply to entertain us, right? Um, But as I understand it, he he would contend that they are not there simply to entertain. They are there to educate and to advance culture. Uh, He said that about art and music. I, I have no idea, frankly, what Wittgenstein's... Relationship to professional road racing was for cycling. Um, although I understand when he lived in Cambridge, he did used to ride his bike around. Um, but I would put into the same. Ca- having witnessed today's race, David, I would put into the same category as art and music. I would put cycling. It's there to entertain, but it's there to educate, and you learn so much from a bike race like today about all sorts. Only psychology, human nature, frailty, ambition, desire. Um, you know the, the 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 vim and vigor of youth, and the upward trajectory, and the the, the grizzly experience of
1: age. It was all on display today. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I I think that concept of philosophy and the idea that what separates us uh, from animals and from barbarians is an appreciation of uh, art, and so we then project it very quickly into this idea that. It's snobbery, it's pretentious, it's upper class, middle class, it's wealth. But no, you can do it wherever you are. And it's it offers you a vehicle out of the norm, out to just be yourself, find your place. And uh, also, regards to bike racing, as you just said, the reason you and I love it so much is because we find all those different stories, those narratives. So whenever you see somebody being dropped... It's, there's a story behind that. Whenever you see somebody attacking, there's a story behind that. Whenever you see somebody working on the front, there's a story why they're doing that. It's a, there's a, very, it's a very narrative-based sport, and it's, it, to a certain degree, it's a, I often use the term soap opera, but maybe it is uh, more akin to art. And even when there isn't a story, that's a
0: story. <laughs> Some of our yeah. favourite moments of commentating have been, do you remember when Astana got on the front. I can't remember which race it was. It Was it on the Tour? And they just rode off the front <laughs> <laughs> in the middle of the race on a sort of Category 2 climb for no apparent reason. And once they'd done that, they looked around and collectively thought, why did we do that? It's <laughs> <So>, like,
1: <laughs> we made a terrible mistake. I've always really this this. I think uh, uh, you know this, uh, but our listeners, uh, only a minority of our listeners will know this story, is that when I was on Sonia Duval, which is my comeback team after my ban, um, we had some good riders on there. One of them, was Gilberto Simoni, who was an old-school Italian rider who won the Giro. And uh, we were in the, the final week of the Tour de France, and it was the final Saturday, so the penultimate day. And we'd done nothing the whole race. Uh, I'd been in some moves trying, and he hadn't lived up to expectations. And then all of a sudden, I was in the peloton watching, and then all of a sudden, my team was on the front riding, this yellow team, Sonny Duval, and even Gilberto Simoni. Uh, de, Giro Talia winner was on the front and I rode up and I was like what are we doing Jubo? and he was like and he just looked at me and he said David it's Saturday <laughs> <laughs> and I was like what do you mean he's like well we've done nothing the whole bloody race we may as well ride when the most people are watching and l- l- at least pretend we've done something but I always <laughs> I always remember David it's Saturday, that's why we're riding. Yeah, Baro McLaren today.
0: Um, it's Thursday today. Barry McLaren McLaren declared it was Saturday at one point. Today. Yeah, um, they when, did when they got on the front, failing to realise that you know obviously there were no live television cameras, <laughs> so no one no <laughs> one saw that. their no one saw their Saturday moment. Um, but they had a, that's gone into that's now entered my my, my um, cycling parlance David it's a Saturday yeah. moment for it's Saturday McCone. they had a Saturday right. moment where unbeknownst to us we just got the old school sort of telex wires through that um, they were riding on the front and everyone thought oh lander then <laughs> definite lander for the day because as we discussed the other day he has his days he certainly has his days today wasn't one of them so that never materialised um Let's rewind a little bit. Stage two, 132 kilometres from Vienne to Col de Port, which literally had Richie Port's name all over it. And the headline writers at Le Keep were were already penning their, you know, already had their lithographs sorted and it was all ready to go. Unfortunately, that didn't happen either. Um, Loads of other stuff happened, though, including an effective breakaway today in the sense that it was um, immense for Michel Cher as a body of work two days in a row now over this horrible, uh, difficult terrain of the Dauphiné, and, um, and he's got himself into a position now. <laughs> I wonder if you ever found yourself in this position, David, in a, in a stage race where two or three days in you think, oh, okay, uh, I've got to go for the King of the Mountains jersey seriously now. Did you ever, because it must be like, yeah. you must think, oh, why, why have I, I done I this? Can,
1: uh, I can tell you exactly when it's happened. Uh, the first time it happened to me was 1999, the Volta Valenciana. And I, I found myself with the, the mountains jersey after a, a long, crazy attack on the first day, which was provoked by Lance Armstrong uh, because we were friends back then and he was on US Post on it was his first race back. And we were in the bunch and uh, we were going on this first climb and we were chatting away. And I was like, wow, I feel, I'm feeling really good today. And he was like, oh, let's go and attack then. And I was like, screw it. And I attacked, and I just ripped the whole race to pieces. And I ends, ended up spending 120 kilometers off the front, won all the mountains points. But then I had the biggest crash of my life, uh, about 25 kilometers from the finish, because I was off the front. But I had three minutes. I totally ripped the whole peloton to pieces. And I was coming around a switchback. and Graham Watson, the very uh, renowned photographer, was nearby. And I flipped the barrier and went down a ravine and lost my bike and got back on and... Then ended up getting caught and all these different things but i found myself with the mountains jersey for the next five days and then <laughs> i was like oh bugger so i started going which i'd never done before because i was only 22 and it was a different era so i just went as a very hilly race the volta valenciana with the best riders in the world i was like screw it i'll just go out there and try and win the points and then i found myself beating everybody Uh, only because i had the jersey on because it was the first time i actually was uh, endorsed to do it and then i remember being with michael Burgard, who was at the time he was like the best dutch rider in the world basically and racing against him at the top of mountains and i was just beating him every time and then he gave up and i was like (laughs) the only reason i'm doing this is because i'm wearing this bloody jersey and i've been forced to do it and so, yeah, so I had been in that situation before. And, yeah, it's an amazing thing.
0: It is, actually. And there was something, there was something superb about um, the way Michel Cher went about his business today. Because that was a big group and had some decent climbing talent in it. The likes of Ben O'Connor was in the group and the omni-talented Kasper Asgrain. So he had to, he had to earn um, the points that he uh, got. And he finally clinched the deal on the third climb of the day, which is a nasty climb. The Cote Maillet uh, today with the peloton bearing down on him um and uh, we'll come to that in just a second but i just thought it was nice you know michel cher is a friend of yours i've been working with steve cummings as you know out in italy who was a teammate of shares for many years at bmc and and steve cummings has got nothing but good things to say about michel cher as well he's a lovely man yeah and and as a racer we've always admired um the sight of cher on on, you know setting the pace or helping to set the pace for bm for richie port you know, in, 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 in years gone by, um, and going surprisingly deep into, into the final climb of the day. You think, oh, he's still there. Um, but, you know, that was always what Cher did. So it's actually, I know it's the King of the Mountains competition, I know it's not the Tour de France, it's the Dauphiné but it was a finish line in his own right today. And um, he clearly wants this. Uh, he'll have to perhaps get in the break and try to take the, <laughs> the Col de la Madeleine from the breakaway
1: tomorrow. Mm. So um, I hope he speaks well tonight. <laughs> yeah. I'll just finish that kind of that, yeah. that story with this with this idea, which I I'm a big advocate of with within the world of cycling. Because so the only sport that has the uh, this jersey phenomenon. If you're a world champion, you wear it for a year. National champion, if you're in the race, you wear the leader's jersey, the mountains jersey, the points jersey. And so there there is I going back to the philosophy. We started with philosophy, and as a philosophy I have about cycling, is that the wonderful thing is you. The jersey wears you. You don't huh. wear the jersey. So when you got it on the shoulders, you have to respect it, and you will fight incredibly hard to protect the honor of that jersey. And it's uh, my dad was a fighter. It was a, in the Royal Air Force. And he told me about fighter pilots and uh, Spitfire pilots, and he said the the greatest stories were the best pilots. They would get in and they'd strap in, and they felt like they wore the plane. And then mm. they had to do the best for the plane rather than the plane was looking after them. And I think that's very much what a jersey in a in a bike race feels like. And that's what Cher's doing. You're literally going out. You're going out and you're totally doing going beyond yourself to do what that jersey's supposed to do. And that's what Cher did today.
0: Yeah, I like that. I like that. And actually, I quite like the daft blue polka dot jersey. I think it looks quite stylish. I think it looks lovely. What? <laughs> um, so anyway listen the breakaway was inevitably going to be caught today and it was Wout van Art, wasn't it wearing talk about jerseys wearing the yellow jersey who got on the front as we knew he would today repaying the um, complete dedication and focus of his team on stage one um, and he took them over the Cote Maillet and over the top and down into the valley road and then he sat on the front and um, I noticed the same thing as you noticed david it was quite significant but you managed to interpret it really well is that just for, for a kilometer um robert hessink swap places with him having done that big turn yesterday and then white van took over again which w- with the benefit of hindsight you very cleverly analyzed as some um, hessink just didn't have the legs today again to do what he did yesterday which was pretty phenomenal so that told a story so it didn't take long until they got onto the the slopes of the col de port with just 75 17.5 kilometres to go until suddenly Jumbo Visma looked a little bit thin on numbers because Van Aert wasn't there, T- Tony Martin had long since gone and Robert Hessink hadn't lasted and Tom Dumoulin was always, always not quite there today all the way up to the very top so he didn't actually play a role today, Tom Dumoulin and that didn't leave much. What it left was super impressive but in just in sheer numerical terms it didn't leave much and I think David the peloton and specifically Ineos looked at that and adapted perhaps adapted their tactics accordingly would you agree
1: i'd agree completely i think what happened was uh and this is i think what we are going to see the tour de france uh, they will be um flipping roles very often and whenever they're not controlling it we will have this curtain across the road and everybody waiting for them to control it and there, so it's turning into a very psychological game between them and it could be day by day uh, in the sense that you know, that's obviously the very common term. But as you, you just referenced, you could have Robert Hessing fantastic yesterday and then not so good today. You can have Wout van Aert wins the stage yesterday, does his amazing things today. But then Tom Dumoulin's on the back foot. Now, these their two teams are like the ha- two Harman, uh, Harlem Globetrotters kind of battling against each other. Now, we're in a very human uh, I think a very human era of our sport in the sense that we we will see frailty regularly but because those teams have such deep uh, pockets and have built such great arsenal of, of, of riders and the whole thing, it does mean the whole peloton is now going to be watching those teams and how they act and that's not to say they're invincible or uh, or weak because Team Minneapolis did everything right today. It's in the sense that they were doing it. What I think is, I think for us as spectators, because even you and me, Ned, we're spectators, there's a certain kind of pang of uncomfortableness when you watch Chris Freeman and Thomas being weak. It, it's not comfortable. And Egan Bernal's there, but he needs that whole setup. And I I don't know, maybe that's just me, but it makes me feel very uncomfortable when I see Geraint Thomas and Chris Froome being weak because I'm so accustomed to them being strong. Uh, Indeed, the
0: raw statistics you know, now the dust has settled about half an hour ago, the race finished and we're still fresh in our memories. And you say, Team Ineos did nothing wrong, did everything right today. But then you look at at the results page and uh, their best placed rider was Egan Bernal and he finished 10th. Yeah, ten, second, ten seconds down, you know, he was beaten by Guillaume Martin. Now, that's I mean, not because that's not because Guillaume Martin of Cofidis is a better prospect for the Tour de France or the Dauphiné than Egan Bernal. But the uncomfortable nature comes with the fact that Bernal, the super talent, hasn't got the support that every other leader going back to Bradley Wiggins in 2012 has enjoyed from Skystroke
1: Ineos going into the Tour de France. It's self-evident. Um, I and, think and, I said. I, I think yeah. I said, and I, I said it because we're in commentary, and you, you, we both say things that just come into our heads because we have to because we talk for so long. And and I was watching G today, and I love G and Garant Thomas uh, rather than G, and he looked like normal Garant Thomas today, which is the majority of his career in these races. He had these really amazing things, but what? And I was like, oh, that's weird. This is kind of that's exactly kind of this is the behavioral pattern uh, of Geraint Thomas and what I would expect of him and I don't know whether that's everybody else has raised their game or something's happened there I I genuinely don't understand and, and it's there's a normalization that's going on across the whole peloton for one reason or another I think actually everybody's got up to their level and everybody's kind of got good 'm reading too much into this, David, but Egan
0: Bernal, like Nairo Quintana, actually, and all the Colombians, uh, by the way, Sergio Aguita had a big tumble today, which is a mm-hmm. big shame. But Danny Martinez finished well. They have been up until you know relatively recently; they've all been at altitude in Colombia doing their own training program, obviously with remote control guidance from Tim Kerrison and you know Ineos. In, in the case of Egan Bernal, whereas the rest of the Ineos riders have been working together, often and on, off and on, and in Tenerife, and. Um, it's, it just looks like there's too many of them, not quite on form, to be non-coincidental. And you do wonder whether, systemically, there's something in their approach that they've maybe tried differently or just hasn't quite worked for them thus far. Or, we've all got it wrong, <laughs> and they're playing some, some long game that's going to evolve into the third week of the Tour de France.
1: So the thing is, I don't doubt them, because this is where they're brilliant um. My sister, Dave Brailsford, the the kind of the the people who run that team, they will now see this not as a uh, they'll see this as a challenge, and they'll now find a way because what they design that they design everything about uh, winning, and so I would wouldn't be surprised. What will make this Tour de France so fascinating is even if they're underpowered because of one fault or another they'll do a tactical play that'll be amazing that could still win them the race because they will do most multifaceted ways because that's what's so clever about them they they don't they adapt very quickly and and at, they're at their best when they're challenged and and i agree with you Ned i think there's probably probably we're being uh, i don't think they've done this deliberately obviously they haven't but i, I do think they can probably do something quite special to fix it and they can do it they'll probably do it tactically yeah. yeah which would be cool
0: yeah yeah well it's just very it's very interesting isn't it i mean it's so interesting we almost started giggling today in the commentary david with a, with a kilometer to go <laughs> you know there's there's this move for there's this slightly disappointing you know modern cycling move for squad numbers so that every rider has a a, a number that they keep throughout the season sod that because the great thing about the Flamme Rouge today was it was all the number ones wasn't it how many teams have we got here you know 20 teams um, there were virtually 20 number ones there, um, with the exception of Sepkus, who was the only domestique left. And it was brilliant because none of them were really, you know, there wasn't, for example, an Alejandro Valverde there. And there wasn't a Julien Alaphilippe there, who you knew would pump the rest in a sprint. So they were all kind of climby types who only seldom, very seldom come to the top of a mountain normally on their own but you know only seldom come in a group that they have to contest with three or four this was like a dozen <laughs> it yeah. was absolutely great and Roglic did a masterful thing it just it was 600 metres to go where he just looked round and went sod that and went but you have to have the legs to back that up
1: yeah I mean I agree and I, the number thing I, I, it does make sense if we're going to Americanize and and you know cause you're, you're a great fan of football and you're writing a book about football and have been considering it for a long time is it's the randomness that makes it special. It's the the idea where, uh, as a pro cyclist, when I came in to my team when I was 19 pro team, because every team is given, um, so you've got 1 to 9, 11 to now 19, 21, so it's always each 10 numbers is given to each team. Now, to have the number one, or the twen- 11, or the 21, or the tw- or the 31, or the 41, or the 51, or the 61, it means if you've got the one at the end of your number, you are leading that team, and you have to spend often many years to get to that point where you get that number one, and that's what makes it so special, is that yeah. when, as you said, when you look down and you look at that helicopter shot, and you see there's just this bunch of riders with all ones in their backs, you're like, man. Now yeah. we have got the game. The game's on now. It's yeah. kind of yeah. It, yeah it, whereas if they had a big twenty three or fifty seven, uh, it wouldn't be the same. Because this and this goes back to this idea that I do generally believe where you, the jersey wears you, the number wears you. If you've got a one in your back, it means you've earned that. Yeah, uh, yeah, and yeah. yeah. And if you wear the jersey, you earned that, and you now have to respect it. Uh, rather than just yeah. franchising it all out and Americanizing it. So yeah. that's my yeah. point of view on that. Now, it,
0: <laughs> I've just watched some of the replays back, David, again, and um, yeah. Roglic was uncatchably brilliant, and he just powered his way over those final 600 yeah. metres. Um, there was a little hesitation um, Bernal went after him for about forty or fifty meters, and then went. I'm. Oh, well, hang on. I've got nine number ones on my back, and so he pulled over <laughs> to the right, and um, then it all stalled. And then Guillaume Martin, I think, quite brilliantly, actually, attacked on the left. Oh, instantly, he just thought, "Oh yeah, it's one of the right. Go now. Yeah, go and now. then there was a slight hesitation, and it was Pino who set off a little bit later after Guillaume Martin. And I think if I think if Pino. Had been positioned, or had had the presence of mind to go straight with Guillaume Martin, Pino would have been a lot closer to Roglic than he was. Because I've just seen a helicopter shot yeah. all the way to the finish, and Pino, the longer that chase went on, the closer he got to Primoz Roglic. So that's a so really Ned dynamic. Is, uh, that's
1: uh, if you got into bike racing when you were younger, what you just described is uh, the ultimate separator between the the bu- the winners and the not winners regards bike racing, I was taught from, and I latched onto this when I was a teenager, is if it goes, don't think, go. And exactly what you just said there regards uh, his decision, you know, not to go. And so I was always taught, don't think, go. If you feel it, if you think, if you want to win the race, don't think, you go. And if there's any young bike riders that do listen to this, and maybe we just have a very middle-aged audience, I don't know, we do, probably. But any young bike racer, if you're in a bike race and you're in a critical moment and you see something happen, don't think, go. And it's like, that was always the lesson I was always taught. And then if you always keep doing that, and that's very Julian Alaphilippe style, that's uh, Jens Vocht in the old days, as the best champions, they would just, that you just go. And then you don't think for the next move, you just keep hopping, skipping to the next move. Don't yeah. think go, don't think go, don't think go. And then all of a sudden you're at the finish line, you won. And it's like, oh, okay. And But that takes a lot of, that takes quite a lot of many years of doing don't think go to get there. Brilliant. And the
0: the, the second observation from watching the replays again that I just made that it's difficult in the thick of commentary because you can't assimilate all the details and also have words coming out of your mouth that (laughs) make sense. It's quite a tricky thing to do. So it's always instructive for us to watch it back a little bit. You know, that initial attack a bit further down the mountain from Bernal, where he peeled over to the left hand side of the road, which is, of course, a smart thing to do. A little bit on the stealth. And you you thought, wow, lucid, in control, tactically perfect. Here he goes. Boom. It was a bit soft. And as brilliant as Sepp Kuss was, he shut him down within seconds.
1: Uh, no, he that, didn't. so, And that was a surprise. So, Sepp, a surprise. Kuss, Sepp Kuss was doing the don't think go as a domestique. So, his job is just shut things down. And the reason that, so when Bernal has a domestique that just shuts him down immediately, you're like, well, that wasn't strong enough. Because as a domestique, he's not a number one. Yeah. A number one just closed my attack down. But Sepp Koos, because he's in such a great team environment and has his orders and he is not overthinking anything. He's just, you go, I go, you go, I go, you go, I go. And he's just covering everything. And then as a leader, uh, like Egan Bernal, when you have a domestic, shut down your attack, all all your morale has gone and that's it. You're on the back foot. Very interesting. I'm sh- uh, Well, just
0: it's mouthwatering for the next three days of Summit finishes, all this mm-hmm. to go. Will Pinot get stronger? Will Bernal recover? And just to round it off, um, since we started this section of Racing Review, David, with, a, with, a, with an assessment of Wittgenstein's attitude towards art and culture, let's return to philosophy and tip our hats to Guillaume Martin who for ages has been writing for Wanty Groupe Gobert and has switched to Cofidis, where Cédric Vasseur has declared that he will finish on the podium at the Tour de France in the coming years. um martin of course, is the philosopher of the poet, not in any sort of like abstract way, like, you know, this is not a nickname. It's because he's a philosopher. Uh, he's, written, uh, you know, he's written a PhD on philosophy and a book called Socrates on a Bicycle. L- not available yet in English, although I know someone in America, Bob Roll, who might be working on uh, making an English translation of this. Um, but Le Socrate à vélo is uh, available from you know, French bookshops. I'd order it because it's very amusing and very interesting. And I watched him win a stage last year on Mount Etna, which was just fantastic because at the Giro di Sicilia because, of course, Mount Etna is the seat of the gods, and it was just perfect for him to uh, for, to talk about Greek
1: philosophy. Uh, on that note, because I think it's a, uh, just a perfect just segue that we hope to get Bob Roll that none of our audience will know uh, no, onto this podcast in the next few know. days. They should know Bob Roll. Because Bob Roll is the most amazing uh, character. He's Terrific, the equivalent terrifying. to me. In uh, in the American NBC commentary world and the national TV, he d- he's the co-commentator, the ex-pro yeah. cyclist, from the 1980s, and uh, ho- hopefully we'll get him on this podcast the next few days. Bob Bob
0: wrote, um, David, that would be great. I haven't spoken to Bob for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, Bob wrote, you say he's the co-commentator for the American network, which is mm-hmm. true, but of course he has replaced Paul Sherwin, mm-hmm. who passed away. Um, and Bob was Paul's closest friend. In many ways. And Paul was Bob's closest friend in many ways. And uh, last year for the road book, I commissioned Bob, who thought long and hard about whether or not he wanted to do it, but I commissioned Bob to write about both his memories of Paul and then the responsibility of taking over and literally filling his friend's shoes um, sitting next to Phil Liggett for the American Network. So that's one of the essays in the 2019 oh, Roadbook. Wow. But yeah, get, get Bob yeah. on. By the way, we've got a special guest coming up. David we've already pre-recorded this interview with a bit of production values to it as well Um, we'll have a short break and then let's hear all about uh, Gran Piemonte which finished yesterday in some style (laughs) from the lips of our very own Matt (laughs) Rendell
1: Okay, as requested,
2: a, um, a summary uh, or some comments or some colour, a flow of consciousness from uh, the or, well, from the day after the 104th Gran Quiemonte. Uh, I'm walking through these amazing vineyards uh, of um, Le Langhe. Uh, Le Lange is uh, an area of uh, the southern part of uh, Piedmont, separated from Il Roero, the next region, uh, to the east uh, by the uh, Tanaro River. Um, In the Lange, uh, the soil is tannin-rich and uh, they produce mainly reds. In the Roero, it's much wilder, there's more uh, woods and so on, and the soil is good for whites. And um, I told you think, if you want to order a bottle of red, you could do worse than go to uh, uh, georgiosobrero.it. That's the father of the rider, Mateo Sobrero, who was uh, 23rd yesterday um, riding for NTT, one of very, very few Piedmontese riders, really. I think there were something in excess of 20 riders from uh, Lombardy only a handful, four or five, from uh, Piedmont. I don't know what that tells us, really. But um, in any case, I say the 104th Gran Piemonte. Of course, it's non- first written in 1906, but renamed um, the Gran Piemonte in the time of Michele Acquaroni at RCS, given this ridiculous name like Il Lombardia, when what it really is is the, the Giro di Piemonte, the... Tour of Piedmont and the Tour of uh, Lombardy. I don't know why they have to do this. Anyway, uh, the race itself sounds pretty straightforward. Four breakaway riders, uh, basically Lotto Jumbo Visma chase all the way. Um, they set up George Bennett, who's got two race days of the season when he can uh, race for himself between yesterday and and the end of the year. And that was uh, yesterday and Saturday's in Lombardia, and, um, and it came off one. It was fantastic. And he rode Gianni Moscon off his wheel, so that's a sign of um, not just good climbing legs, but a, a good punchy acceleration as well, and uh, held off the chase with the, the brilliant Diego Lisi, who closed to within, oh, four feet. Anyway, finished in, about the, in the same time as George, but George won it convincingly. It was very hot, very humid, great weather, for growing uh, red grapes um, towards the hotter uh, part of the spectrum for holding a bike race. Um, But then the heavens unleashed heavy rain um, on the finish line in the final three, four kilometres, which meant that uh, uh, Bennett's main concern on the final descent was to stay upright on the curves and then just pushed it forward. He was looking very skinny, very fit, Uh, of course... Um, that win comes on the same day that Taravnard wins the stage in the uh, Dauphiné. So uh, morale in uh, Jumbo-Visma must be very high uh, indeed. Um, What else? What else can I say? Yeah, Gianni Mascon, the best of the uh, Ineos uh, riders, but not particularly good. Um, Oh, yeah, uh, Mathieu van der Poel, um, 13th, as you know, in Stade Bianche, 13th in... um, uh, in what's it called, Milano San Juan, in that thing they had on Saturday, and um, not 13th but third uh, here. So um, yeah, getting 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 a tad better, getting a tad better. But so far it's the Juan Manuel show, isn't it? Anyway, there we are. That's 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 all I have to say on that subject. Actually, hold on, Thor, that's not all I have to say on the subject, because the main thing that happens uh, here uh, in the next couple of months is the harvest of white truffle. Going prices at the moment are about 3,500 euros per kilo, but it could be a good year. They have to wait 90 days from the last rains, and uh, so far, so good. So uh, breath is baited for the truffle season.
0: I, I'm i going to say something quite controversial here. I don't like truffle oil or truffles particularly.
1: Well, I don't think you're alone. Uh, my wife, Nicole, doesn't like them. Uh, I don't know if my sister likes them or not. Um, my mum... So it's, it's, it's one of those things It's like marmite, isn't it? Truffles are like marmite. You like them Wait, or you don't. Have are now, you, just, I,
0: you haven't actually expressed Yeah, I was going to say you've gone around your family to try and ascertain to try and work out what your opinion is vis-a-vis truffles. Have you, I, I love truffles. Oh, you
1: love truffles. Okay. Of, oh, I of course love you truffles. Do. I love truffle <laughs> oil. I love. I love. I love truffles. I think it's, <laughs> yeah, I think it's great. It's probably for my years in France. I just love the whole idea of it. It's like you need like, snuffle pigs to find them.
0: No, all that is cool, you know, undeniably it is. cool. It's just they don't taste very yeah. nice. So it's one of those things, a bit like. Oh, they taste amazing.
1: They it's like rich, they overpower. It's like, it's like super. Yeah, but if you if you're not eating, if you're not a, gl- a glutton, and it's like it's just a, a, a nice little f- strong flavor. It's probably designed to just overpower really shitty food. But at the same time, if you if you get it right, it's really nice. Yeah, uh, for me, it's, um, it, there's,
0: it belongs in a category of things that we're supposed to like and work. I mean, it's incredibly expensive truffles, as Matt was telling us in that l- very good report. But, right. um, but uh, another really expensive thing that overpowers stuff and tastes like soapy water is saffron. Right. That's another. That's another thing that you've got to be saffron, very careful with.
1: Yeah, like that's risotto, isn't it? Yes, yeah, yes. You got yes. to tread a fine line. Very saffron risotto is like you're like on a tightrope. <laughs> it's like it's like you can you can mess that up really easily. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it, there's a few things like that. It's it, it's also spice, anything. But the whole truffle thing is, I simply quite do admire the concept it's so southwest France which is where i spent my 20s and the pride in the truffle i i i still love this concept of truffle hunting because you're going out there to hunt them but actually all you're doing is looking for essentially mushrooms that are under the ground yeah uh, but it feels like a hunt because you've got special snuffle pigs to help you <laughs> so it, the reward is huge it's like you're going it's like you're looking for this uh, incredible fish that no one knows about, that yeah. only you can find. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. I, I kind of like the whole concept of it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's me, though. Um, and
0: I suppose the other thing that was relevant from Matt's report is George Bennett. Boom. His um, Everybody's Oof. been raving about his power output because apparently he only weighs 54 kilograms or something and mm. so his maximum power is ridiculous or something i don't i never really understand these things but
1: welcome to modern cycling everyone's like that apart from remco apart from remco apart from remco in the sense that because this is the we get into the yeah that uh, i think it's it's i think just george doing that is amazing i say forget about the power outputs and stuff because he spent many years to get there and that was a great win and tactical, yeah. tactically well done. Well, you've also uh, unfortunately labelled another person that he dropped on the final attack, Gianni Moscon. as somebody who will never, <laughs> who will never win again. Only won
0: one World Tour uh, race ever, David. Gianni Moscon has only ever won one World Tour race. Where was it?
1: Eneco or something? Even I don't know.
0: It's way shitter than Eneco. Eneco great. It's way shitter than Eneco.
1: Thanks, man. Yeah. Uh, What's the uh, shittest world tour race? Poland.
0: No, no, no shitter than Poland. Uh, it's,
1: it's, uh, no, no, it's, it's Middle East somewhere. Even Is shitter than that. East? <laughs> 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 Guangxi. Ah, oh, Guangxi, yeah, the UCI created moneymaker. Yeah, the corrupt race. That,
0: but don't you think that's interesting? Gianni Mosconne has only ever yeah. won one stage of Guangxi at the highest level in, in of and sport cause, holy crap yeah. so
1: we're going to put that on the um, <laughs> the Ned Bolting uh, the <laughs> list of sh- list, the blacklist <laughs> yeah so we've got Peter Sagan Jenny Moscon <laughs> alright that's, that's now chronicled
0: <laughs> um, yeah no it's great but, uh, d- 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 but <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> team Jumbo Visma you noted quite rightly how brilliant Sepp Kuss was today rider who you really like yeah. Who who goes to the Tour de France? Does George Bennett go or does Sep go in that in that one? Role? Or Hessink might maybe even might be vulnerable to one. Se- se-
1: one. Se- uh, Sep Cus will go every day of the week because se- there's only two riders that. Um, so Sep and George Bennett are fulfilling the same role. Yeah, and uh, equally, the way the team's going and the depth they have and the security they have, they could have two Sep Yeah, and which means because I do think you'd always take Sep before George Bennett. Would you? Because only, and that's that's no critique against George Bennett. Because George Bennett's amazing, but Sepp Coos was was um, Roglic's right hand at the Volta last year when he won it, and he's doing exceptional work here at the Dauphiné. So they've all obviously fun, formed a bond, which George Bennett will now be uh, a, a second Sep Koos, if you like. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. Uh, but it'd be good to have. Okay.
0: I'm going, to, I'm going to round this off, David, with our continuing inquiry into the life and times of Ludwig Wittgenstein. I'm, oh, yeah, I, brilliant. I'm, going, I'm, I'm, fascinated, I'm fascinated by him. Um, my problem is every time I actually try and understand what the point of him was, you know, his actual work, I just butt up against a wall of my incomprehension. So what we're really looking for is um, someone in our, in our listenership to actually come on, Let's just lay it right out there and tell us what the hell Wittgenstein
1: was actually talking about, because it's beyond I think I might know somebody. It just occurred to me. I think I might know somebody. I'll I'll hit them up. Bob Roll. I think I might know somebody. (laughs) But yeah. But yeah. No, if if anybody out there knows uh, what Wittgenstein was talking about, we can even do it off there. Uh, Yeah. It'd be amazing.
0: But the more you read about his family... I told you yesterday that Karl Wittgenstein, his father, was that he was born in late 19th century Vienna, which, of course, was still the capital of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And he was born into one of the wealthiest families in Vienna. Well, correction, he was born into arguably the wealthiest family in Vienna. And because Vienna was the capital of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, his family was probably the wealthiest family in Europe. And because Europe was the wow. centre of the, um, you know, em- empire and industrial world, he might have been the richest man in the world. Karl Wittgenstein uh, was had an effective monopoly on the steel and iron production in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. That, what? that was the inheritance that came the way of Ludwig Wittgenstein, right? Wittgenstein then, after, I mean. It's just breathtaking, everything that happened to him. His bravery in the First World War, fighting for the Austrian army, both on the Eastern Front and in the Dolomites against the Italians, um, was exceptional. But then tragedy befell him and his family over and over again. Uh, Three of his four brothers committed suicide. Um, His brother, Paul Wittgenstein, was one of the greatest concert pianists there's ever been. Um, Paul Wittgenstein lost his right arm, which was amputated when he was injured during the same war in World War I. And um, the composer, because Paul Wittgenstein then laid out a challenge later in life to any of the composers to compose a concerto for a left hand only. And... um, No absolutely, This music that you can hear playing now is... Ravel, the, the the composer's answer to Paul Wittgenstein's challenge, and this that you can hear being played is being played not by Paul Wittgenstein, although he played it himself. This is being played by a, a, a pianist, Alfred am I don't know who it is, with the left hand only.
1: <laughs> wow! And
0: that that's was just so that's melting. just casually. That's that's um. You know what? You, I, I guess you,
1: I, I guess you've got, but you know what? You got some. Some choices if you're that wealthy and you, you're that you've given, I suppose, where you are. If you've, you, you've given that many resources, regards uh, advantages and wealth, you either just go and waste it or you do something, yeah. And it's it's good to hear that maybe Ludwig Wittgenstein tried to do something with all that privilege. Well, he,
0: he gave his fortune away, he just gave it away, his slice of it. Gave it to his um, when he was hmm. himself was contemplating suicide. He gave it to his sisters. Just he, he he didn't want any of it. He gave large amounts away initially to the, the great Austrian poets Rainer Maria Rilke and Georg Trakl, hmm. who also committed suicide. I know that seems to be a kind of running theme in in Wittgenstein's actually quite tragic life. But. Um, I, I don't think I've been this fascinated about a towering figure like Wittgenstein as I have been by this pure chance coincidence of seeing this blue plaque at Guy's Hospital a couple of days ago. Yeah. It's a real journey, but. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. yeah,
1: it's amazing. It's, uh, I find it fascinating because Wittgenstein, is, as I said, is something that I encountered when I was younger, um, but, uh, when I was dancing between these things, but I didn't know any of that. No. And it's, uh, it's, uh, it's one of those narratives that just leaves you haunted yep. about who the person was. Yeah, Very interesting
0: And his last words And let this be the last words of today's podcast We'll go out on this The last words of Ludwig Wittgenstein Tell them I've had a wonderful life